You're listening to Unsung, a crack magazine podcast on Sonos Radio, where the world's greatest artists reveal their heroes who never caught the spotlight. Caroline Polacek is a US songwriter, producer and singer. Her music has taken many forms, from the dramatic synth-pop of Chairlift to the brooding alter-ego of Ramona Lisa, the ambient experimental sounds of CEP, and more recently, the atmospheric electro-pop under her own name. As a songwriter, Caroline has written for the likes of Beyoncé, Solange, Travis Scott and Charlie XEX. Caroline's unsung choice is the 1980s British pop band Prefab Sprout. While they built a loyal following in their era, the band were difficult to classify and often get overlooked in the history books. Caroline speaks to journalist and broadcaster Chal Ravens about the lasting impact this band has had on her life and approach to making music. Well, hi, Caroline. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. Prefab Sprout is your choice for Unsung. I wonder if you could, first of all, just describe Prefab Sprout in a sentence to someone who had never heard of them. Prefab Sprout is a kind of prog jazz sophisticated pop 80s band with very kind of poetic kind of virtuosic lyricism from Durham County North UK and I love them. <laughs> when did you first encounter them given that you weren't there at the time? I first encountered Prefab Sprout when an ex-boyfriend of mine who is a music producer made me a mixtape in our like early stages of courtship that had Wild Horses by Prefab Sprout on it. And Wild Horses is like probably the sexiest song ever written. It sets up this like really awkward and strange metaphor for like attracting ponies with sugar cubes to like flirting with a younger girl. Through the rails I spied your ponytail I tried with sugar cubes and they're okay but I don't think I'll catch you that way I hate myself Cause you're so cool with your mocking eyes Won't you look at the old fool One of the things that kind of makes the song interesting is like the distance that gets set up in it and kind of like appeal of looking at someone through the barrier and kind of wanting to cross it. And I think we can all relate to that in one way or another. But um, but the beat of it is just grounded in this absolutely pristine R&B groove, like polished to the high heavens, but with these lyrics that are so abstract. It kind of gives you the same feeling as um, like that song, Who's Gonna Drive You Home, but if it was like on steroids. It's just so sensual and so gorgeously produced. And I knew I needed to find out more about this band. Mm. And do you remember where you were when you first heard that song? I'm guessing this was 2005. And it was definitely on an iPod. I was still using an iPod, yes, even in 2005. <laughs> it's quite a lot of scrolling to get to pee as well in the old iPods. Well, it was also a, um, a mixtape. And I think at that at that time, like, you know, you're still getting MP3s from friends without any labeling. So it would just say like yeah. track four ominously. And you had to <laughs> kind of go back and harass your friend for more information, which was, of course, part of the kind of mystique and fun of finding out about MP3s at that time. But yeah, that was the, that was my entry point to Prefab Sprout. And honestly, I don't think there could have been any other 
entry point because the rest of their their catalog is so complex and jazzy and over the top that no other song would have been a gateway drug. It would have taken something that simple to kind of get me over the complication factor of the, a lot of their other music. But obviously it worked. What else were you listening to at the time? Did it stand out among other things that you had on your iPod? Well, that was a kind of interesting moment in music. So I guess 2005, I was living in Brooklyn, playing in an indie band that was still very like indie with a capital I. Bands like MGMT and Yaysayer were using really polished production, but playing in these like gritty venues without ventilation. And also at the same time, something called the Waves Bundle leaked. And the Waves Bundle is a set of plugins that were very expensive. They were kind of like one of the main big high production packages being used in studios at the time. And suddenly you had all these bands that had a free illegal download of the Waves Bundle who had access to pop production tools that you typically have to work in a very expensive studio to get access to. So I think it was making people look at pop and look at pop production, even look at 80s hi-fi production through the lens of like, this isn't something that I can just listen to for vibe. This is something that I can emulate, but kind of through the attitude of a kind of DIY scrappy indie punk lens. Mm. So I think there are some clear parallels between their sound and yours. Uh, I think there are certain songs that have a kind of a, a polish to them, a pop polish, but with perhaps a perspective that's a bit different, like you were talking about. What kind of parallels do you think there might be between Prefab Sprout and your own songwriting? Has it actually been an influence on your own writing? They've been such a massive influence. And I think even beyond anything to do with the audio or the music, it's the lyrics actually that have made such a big impact on me because Patty McAloon's specific brand of lyric writing is so unique. It's so over the top emotionally. But one thing he kind of keeps coming back to, and obviously this is so English, is a kind of self-effacing quality in the face of joy. Like that joy and ego death come in the same package and that like love is often a kind of transcendental path to both. Even the kind of breakup songs were like extremely self-effacing. You would never hear Patty McAloon singing a kind of like American pop diva like, you didn't deserve me, I'm on to the next, I'm back in my pocket, like found my swag. It's the opposite. It's like it's a decidedly swagless existence. <laughs> um, so I think I think a kind of an, on an emotional level that resonated with a lot of the kind of, you know, anxieties I felt as a young person and finding comfort in those feelings being so magnificently and virtuosically articulated. Um, mm. But also he's funny. There's a sense of humor in these lyrics. And it's so tied to abstraction too. These aren't jokes that land. These are lyrics that kind of like are like, like excuse me, what did, did you actually just say turkey or, <laughs> or hot dog? Uh, completely out of context in a song. And in that way, it's surreal. And I guess surrealism, even kind of in its corniest form, has always been something that I've been attracted to. And the kind of prefab sprout brand of lyrical surrealism has very much affected me. Um, I guess the best way to, to start getting into this would be in my uh, history and my former band, which was called Chairlift. That was my current project when I was, you know, doing my first deep dive into Prefab Sprout. And songs by Chairlift, like Crying in Public, were very much coming out of that kind of self-effacing, absurd ecstasy of a feeling that really I kind of felt like I got a masterclass in with Prefab Sprout. Falling for you, I'm falling for you, I'm sorry. 
I was reading some old interviews of Paddy McAloon to think a bit more about where his influences were coming from. And he was talking about some of the influences that he was drawing on. They were really classic things. They were the Beatles, uh, the Beach Boys, Bob Dylan. But then superseding all of those was show tunes, musicals. He loved musicals. And I wondered if you like musicals and if musicals are also part of your bucket of influences at all. Definitely not consciously, but absolutely on a subconscious level. I guess I had a pretty kind of classic exposure to the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals as a kid. You know, we would do Carousel, Oklahoma, Brigadoon, all all these kind of classic ones in school. And I, you know, obviously auditioned for all of them, never got solos in any of them because I'm a terrible actor, but, (laughs) but was absolutely kind of swept away by the dramas you know, especially the filmed versions, like the filmed version of Oklahoma actually even visually has been a kind of point of reference to me to this day for music videos, just because the staging and the lighting is so specific and cool. Oh, actually, there's one more very obvious point of reference here, which is Disney. I loved Disney films as a kid, and I don't think that's particularly unique. But those songs, especially the 80s and, and early 90s Disney, were just so beautiful. And Alan Menken and Tim Rice, incredible lyricists, incredible songwriters. And that level of drama and also narrative was something that really, I think, has just informed for me what a song is and what a good song does. Mm. There's actually videos of me singing like all the Aladdin and, and uh, Beauty and the Beast songs in the bath as like a six-year-old. And, <laughs> and yeah, that stuff, that stuff makes a very deep impression on your subconscious as a musician. I had very little interaction with musical theater as an adult and maybe in some ways Prefab Sprouts really extreme dynamics and kind of um, quite kind of showy, like jazzy approach to dynamics as well, linked back to that and as part of what I was attracted to with them, yeah. Is there anything else about the way that a Prefab Sprouts song is constructed that might relate to your own music and your own songwriting? You know, I think one thing that I, that I actually really took from them in terms of actually just dynamics was also this idea of the vamp which is a kind of a dirty word in, in pop songwriting, but these sections where you can just really hang on something and let it let this one chord progression or even just one chord hang and just really dig into it. And that was something that, especially for my live show that I've drawn on, this idea that you can kind of like let a lyric fly and just let it hang in the air for a while and just coast on it. I, I think both Prefab Sprout and Brian Ferry and, and his work with Roxy Music kind of taught me the gift of vamp. Another thing that Paddy is very well known for, though, is uh, for having written hundreds of uh, as yet unissued songs and albums. And I wonder if that was maybe something you relate to, because you have had multiple projects and you've had uh, alter egos like Ramona Lisa. And I wonder if you ever have a feeling that you've got more than you can possibly release. I do believe in filtering and clearly Patty did as well. I guess I never see that as a problem because you have all the time in the world to release something once it's recorded. <laughs> um, but making the decision about what to release, you can never undo that. But Patty's demos actually are really interesting to hear because even for songs that read as quite pop, um, when you hear his kind of home demos of them, you realize that it's actually quite pure jazz, that these chord changes or jazz changes. Wow. That was quite an, a revelation for me, actually, because it kind of made me realize that pop 
wasn't a type of music. Pop was a process that a kind of song can get run through. Mm. Um, that pop was like a changing palette that means one thing in one generation and means another in another generation, but that structurally and lyrically and certainly not chromatically does a pop song have to be pop with a capital P. You can sneak anything through that Trojan horse. Mm. Have you stuck by Prefab Sprout over the years or was there a sort of rediscovery at any point? I've absolutely stuck by them and I hope that uh, my choosing to do the interview on them to this day is a testament to that. It's funny being in the UK where so many people kind of have stories of having seen Paddy somewhere or having met him or encountered him in one place or another. Um, you know, he's, he is still active. He released a record, uh, what was it, three years ago? With that song, Grief Built the Taj Mahal on it, which is actually one of my favorite prefab tracks. When the emperor rubbed his eyes And as you Yeah, no, I absolutely stand by them as as uh, one of the most influential artists for me. He's quite recognisable as well, apparently. I've, I've seen some photos and he's very striking. He's kind yeah. of like a, a da- dapper Gandalf yeah. kind of character. Uh, yeah, with the beard and the cane. Why aren't they as popular as they could be? It's quite abrasive in its own way. It's almost abrasive in its smoothness. <laughs> um, with the kind of like you know, the polished horns and the kind of orchestra stabs and the jazz chords. And like you mentioned earlier, the vocabulary, Mm. Um, which is actually precisely why it felt so refreshing to me. But maybe that comes with the generation. I think maybe, you know, pretension comes in and out of fashion. And maybe it was because of the kind of money that was hitting that generation in the 80s. But sophistication and that idea of combining recreation with the intellectual was just in everything at the time. It was in fashion, it was in design, it was in publications, it was in writing. It was, it was this idea that the pretentious and the intellectual was aspirational. And obviously the 90s tore all that down with the idea that, no, this is insidious, this is, this is connected to dirty corporate mentality. This is connected to elitism. But before that bubble burst, I think Prefab Sprout was maybe the most extreme point that that got pushed to. I think in America, you know, we kind of go to like Sade for that kind of texture world, but minus the pretension. But Prefab Sprout was a bit of the whole package. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a there's definitely a theory that in the UK, at least, the 80s and the early 90s were an amazing time for experimental possibly pretentious pop music um, made by working class people because there were kind of material benefits at that time, like basically the dole. There were lots of people who were jobless but were on unemployment <laughs> benefits and had time. Yeah, And I think then the idea of being smart and putting that smartness into your songs all kind of came together perhaps even tied in with the fact that the music industry had a bit more money and if you got a record deal you could go to a fancy studio and have Stevie Wonder on your album as they did um (laughs) and and all of that has changed a lot again if someone hasn't encountered Prefab Sprout before they might come away from this conversation thinking that they are incredibly dense um but also there are loads of you know stone cold hits in there as well it can be 
totally accessible. But again, you know, like we're talking about the kind of abstract and surreal elements of the lyrics. Those aren't dense or intellectualized. That's one of the things I love so much about Prefab Sprout is they they offer the kind of antidote within the music itself. Like the verses might be, you know, really digging into the narrative intricacies of his relationship with someone, but then the chorus, like Moondog, now who's on the moon? That's a chorus. The, these moments of relief and bluntness are just given to you on a platter, and, and that's what's so pleasurable about, about their music. Oh, oh, plus there are just massive hooks, melodically. Just beautiful, stone-cold hooks. <laughs> Do you think you could choose a single favourite Prefab Sprout lyric? Um, I mean, the entirety of the song of Blueberry Pies is probably my favourite one. The lyrics of that song also kind of became very personal for me too. Um, the song very specifically reminds me of when I had a giant crush on Christopher Owens from Girls. And at the time, both of us were in relationships and I knew it was, you know, it was obvious it was never going to happen. But uh, that song kind of felt in an interesting way in an interchangeable way, like either he or I could have written it because it felt like a song that both girls and chairlift could write. And I, and I felt like in some ways it, that kind of lyricism in that moment got quite directly channeled into the solo record I was working on that year, my Ramona Lisa album called Arcadia. But um, yeah, it made me really interested in capturing those kind of in-between unspoken moments, which is maybe a more British European thing to do than an American thing to do anyway. But um but yeah, that moment in time, like spring 2012, definitely is a heavily drenched in prefab sprout, particularly blueberry pies. Who said we be happy the more that we knew? Oh, don't come a call in and some me eyes. This kind of like inconclusiveness of a crush that you know isn't going to manifest, but you can't stop it from existing and the ways it makes you act, the ways it makes you lie, uh, the ways it makes you not look someone in the eyes is just so beautifully encapsulated. And even the way he sings it is so stop start and so like reticent, you know, lying is killing the good things in me. And then Wendy comes in, ask me what the time is, baby. Ask me, honey. Oh, it just sounds like you're, it's a TV with an ad playing in the background. It's so, <laughs> it's so cool. All you have to tell me, all you have to tell me are blueberry, blueberry They just have this way of kind of getting at these very complex situations with like such cutting simplicity. Do you think that he wrote the lyrics... Uh, completely separately or at the same time as the music? I tend to think that it is lyrics first. You know, they're not rhymed for the most part. They feel so conversational and also so specific, whereas the melodies tend to be so kind of jagged and and it feels it feels as though to me as a songwriter that, yeah, that he's letting the lyrics guide the melody. And if he's not, then that's even more of a testament to... Uh, to the melodic brilliance. Mm. And is that how you approach lyric writing? I wish it was. I sincerely wish it was. I'm a melodic writer, first and foremost. Um, melodies come to me so quickly and so simply, and lyrics are like torture for me to write. It takes forever. Often I'll, I'll sit with a, a melodic demo for 
sometimes even over a year before the lyrics get written. And sometimes it's because I kind of, the emotion is already there in the melody. And I feel like the lyrics absolutely have to do that emotion justice. Um, and very often I'm not even willing to verbalize or even aware of um, the situation that was even making me write that way in the first place. It sometimes takes some distance to even be ready to write the lyrics that would were clearly under the surface when I wrote the melody. Do you think they will ever have a true comeback, a true reappraisal? I would love that. In some ways, I think now is the moment for it to happen, if it does. Because that kind of like heart on your sleeve, emotional vulnerability and shamelessness, actually it's so synced up with, I think, how we're seeing people use social media. Oh, yeah. You know, I feel like especially like, you know, when I first started using Instagram in back in like 2012, there was such a sense of like being mysterious or cryptic or just showing these little glimpses, but not showing too much. And now, you know, everybody's using it to talk about their self-care and their depressive tendencies. And, you know, even even the seeing it being used as a kind of emotional community support device through like the Black Lives Matter protests this summer, it's just, it's so loaded with emotion and and, um, and vulnerability and openness and there's no better no better time for prefab sprout to come back to the consciousness i agree so if you could boil it down to one sentence of how prefab sprout have influenced you what would you say beyond the kind of intricate synth arrangements and you know dynamics of their music the lyricism in prefab sprout's definitely been a kind of high watermark for me as a lyricist that um that yeah hasn't kind of inspired me ever since i first discovered them prefab sprout revival is on we're doing it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Because <laughs> love's the final word. Nothing crosses love. Reason has to bow. If love demands it. Moon dark. Guess who's on the moon? Moon dark. Guess who's on the moon? Up there will flag will fly. You've been listening to Unsung, a crack magazine podcast on Sonos Radio, where the world's greatest artists reveal their heroes who never caught the spotlight. Thanks to our guest, Caroline Polacek. It was hosted by Chal Ravens and produced by me, Eliza Lomas. The series leads are Duncan Harrison and Luke Sutton. To keep crack independent, visit crackmagazine.net forward slash support.